This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. This week, our final show of the year. It's Christmas time. Families are gathering in the Midwest. The snow is falling. Obama and Boehner are talking. There can't help but be joy, right? And yet, very real in our consciousness is Newtown, and for many, a lost Christmas and many lives shattered. It was that way too in 1963, a young president gunned down, a nation, a world grieving, and yet still the government carried on. Lyndon Johnson ascended to the Oval Office and Christmas went on too, even joyfully, embodied in a barbecue state visit to the LBJ ranch by the West German Chancellor. We're talking today with two men whose sense of presidential history is unrivaled. Mark Updegrove, director of the LBJ Presidential Library, is with us as the library reopens today on the occasion of Lady Bird's 100th birthday after a $10 million redesign. And then the incomparable Michael Beschloss, the author of nine books on our 20th century leaders, is teaching history in a new way through Twitter. Bite-sized nuggets of nostalgia accompanied by indelible imagery from in and around the Oval Office. Michael will be with us at the bottom of the hour. But first, I'm joined from our Washington studios by my co-host, Adam Belmar, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Adam, of course, was production chief in the George W. Bush administration, the same role I played in the Clinton White House. Adam, it's great to be with you. It is great to be back with you, Josh. Uh, you know, it is, is we're really winding down this year. And uh, even though we're going to be talking to two historians of great note today, it's uh, it's very nice to have this time and space to think about everything that's transpired, even as we watch politics and the drip, drip, drip of the fiscal cliff here in Washington, D.C. And what's your take, Adam, from Washington? I'm, I'm up here in New York. I'm, what, 50, 60 miles away from Newtown. The action uh, in, in terms of what might be done from a political standpoint is happening right where you live. What's what's the mood around town with relation to gun control, mental illness, and, and how this issue might track from here and what Wayne LaPierre might say on Meet the Press this weekend? You know, we had a, a bit of a uh, holiday party over at uh, Quinn Gillespie and Associates where I spend my days. And I was speaking with uh, the former uh, counsel to Bill Clinton, uh, my boss, our chairman, Jack Quinn, about this today. And there is a great sense that there is political will to tackle a difficult issue in Washington like gun control and that we have an opportunity uh, to capitalize upon a, a discussion that's resonating right now. Um, I, I have to tell you, I heard from a lot of other people, and I'm not sure quite how I feel about this, but having come off of an election that was so centered around jobs and uh, the economy, to see the president seemingly so focused, Josh, on immigration reform as his first legislative uh, tackle here in the new year, perhaps, and now gun control, that uh, I personally am starting to worry that the things that we were so concerned about during the election and the things that we heard so much lip service from both sides about are the things that seem so quickly to be falling away from us. Yeah, well, I mean, events take hold, right? And uh, I think that this is the kind of thing, Adam, that it's, it is like a third rail 
talking about the Second Amendment. Uh, in terms of my own personal views, I don't, wouldn't want to touch anyone's rights, but I might want to modify uh, what they might have to do to, to keep their weapons in their house and, and who might be in their house as well and how that those weapons get licensed. Um, but that's just one guy's the view. The conversation it, here is, is, is very similar to what you've just said, and I hear people asking one another, what do you need an assault rifle for? And, you know, there aren't a great deal of us around here uh, who are hunters, not the folks who live right here in the District of Columbia in the outlying areas, but it is such an important part of our culture nationwide. I don't think I know the answer, and I, I'm beginning to think that these questions are ones that we all have to ponder because, you know what, in 1994, when you were in the White House and Joe uh, Biden was still representing Delaware in the Senate, we as a nation came together and, and put an end to this. It seems like we've come close before. I hope there's an opportunity to make some headway and just make common sense changes on these issues, if I may offer a personal thought. I remember it was um, late 1993, uh, one of the first events I orchestrated in the East Room. President Bill Clinton, White House Press Secretary under Ronald Reagan, James Brady, finally signing into law the Brady Law after the Brady Bill had had struggled through Congress for so long. That photo of President Clinton signing legislation with Jim Brady sitting next to him on his wheelchair. I tweeted that picture out in the way that Michael Beschloss is tweeting these pictures out these days, and it seemed to me that, you know, if we can possibly get another signing ceremony in the East Room of something significant, as President Obama says, something meaningful by the 20th anniversary of the Brady Law, that would be great. Indeed, and as we think about introducing our first guest, I think it's remarkable to realize that even though as new events happen and we crystallize this thought on issues, our country has relived parts of its history many times and violence has touched our country as it did in the early 1960s uh, and uh, touched the presidency of the United States uh, in Dallas and ultimately led to the presidency of, of Lyndon Baines Johnson, which is what we're going to talk about a little bit today. That's right. Uh, Mark Updegrove is here, uh, director of executive director of the LBJ Presidential Library, reopened now after a year closed, uh, after a $10 million renovation, uplift, renaming, uh, and new sort of design of its interpretation of the Johnson administration. Mark, welcome to Polyoptics. Merry Christmas. Thank you, Josh. Merry Christmas to you. Paint a picture for Adam and me of uh, November, what November 23rd, 1963 might have been had not shots rang out in Dallas. Where was Vice President Johnson going to take the presidential entourage after their, their activities in Dallas? Well, it, it, they were supposed to go to, uh, they, were, they were on the way to the, uh, the trade mart in Dallas for a luncheon with business leaders principally. And then they were going to go to Austin that evening, uh, there are many people still here in Austin, where I'm speaking with you today, um, who uh, who remember that day, who were, who were here in Austin, awaiting the arrival of the president when they got news that he had been gunned down in 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 Dallas. And then they were to go from the the the, the vice president and, and Lady Bird Johnson, and the president and Mrs. Kennedy, uh, were supposed to go to the LBJ Ranch that evening to spend the night. Uh, so they had a full day of events. Uh, and frankly, the trip to Texas was going incredibly well before those shots rang out uh, on Dealey Plaza. And Walter Jitten had a, a classic Johnson Ranch barbecue ready to go for the Kennedys and their guests. He I did. It was going to be the uh, the reception that uh, uh, I, I've spoken to people who were at the ranch that day preparing for the Kennedys' arrival, and there was this great 
sense of excitement and anticipation. They wanted everything to be right for the Kennedys and for them to get a little taste of Texas. Um, and they, they wanted them to be uh, comfortable and and, um, uh, and they wanted to show them sort of the, the Texas hospitality that the Lone Star State is famous for. This Texas hospitality was uh, something that uh, LBJ uh, really perfected out there on his ranch. And this was to be perhaps one of the most important uh, barbecues that he would have ever hosted to that time. Talk to us about that tradition and how many people were there and uh, what what it meant to to be uh, on, on the ranch and what it might have meant to have the President of the United States there. Take us inside that a little bit more. Lyndon Johnson had enormous pride in in Texas and of the hill country where he was from, and he found great solace by being at the the LBJ ranch. He just had a connection with the land. It's interesting, he spent about between a fifth and a quarter of his presidency on the ranch grounds, away from Washington. Which numbers more than one year, am I right? Uh, More than a year of his presidency. More more than a year uh, was spent uh, at, at the LBJ ranch. And again, it's because he just felt so comfortable there, so relaxed and uh, could get away from the pressures of Washington while not getting obviously away from the, 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 the job. So I, I think he, and he was eager to show folks that land and for them to uh, gain an appreciation of where he was from. Uh, he would take people out in his car and uh, he, he, every year he got a brand new Lincoln Continental, a convertible, and he would drive around the ranch trying to dodge or ditch rather the uh, the Secret Service, uh, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, and would go at great neck speed with usually a, a beer on the dashboard and you know pointing out the various parts of the ranch of of interest. So a month passes. It's a it's a chaotic month of the of uh, the Kennedy funeral, uh, Johnson taking command, uh, and finally getting back to uh, the ranch. Uh, for Christmas 1963. Let's hear for a second a phone call that is at your museum between President Johnson and the former First Lady Jackie Kennedy. I want you to just know this, that I told my mama a long time ago when everybody else gave up about my election in 48. Yeah. My mother and my wife and my sisters and you females got a lot of courage that we men don't have. And so we have to rely on you and depend on you and you got something to do. Uh, you got the president relying on you, and this is not the first thing you had. So, so there are not many women, you know, run around with a good many presidents. So you just, uh, you just bear that in mind. You got the biggest job of your life. He ran around with two presidents. That's what they'll say about me. <laughs> okay, anytime. Goodbye, Bob. Thank you for Bye. calling, Mr. President. Bye. Goodbye. Do come by. I will. Mark Updegrove, Executive Director of the Lyndon Baines Johnson Presidential Library. In the context of your new $10 million renovation of the library, tell us about that conversation and what it tells visitors in addition to the other audio materials that you have now on display. That, that conversation came um, you know, several weeks after the assassination, and LBJ just logged the call into uh, Mrs. Kennedy, who then was living in Georgetown in the, in the family apartment or townhouse, uh, just to say that we, we're thinking about you. We we haven't forgotten about you. The the Johnsons lived at in their home, the Elms, uh, in Washington D.C. for 11 days after the um, the assassination, after LBJ had become president, 
in order that uh, Jackie Kennedy and her two children have an, an easier transition out of the White House and into Georgetown. But even after they left, uh, the two children continued to go to school at the White House throughout the, the course of the calendar year. And he didn't want to, he just wanted to make sure that uh, she knew that, uh, that, that she wasn't forgotten. I think, uh, you know, on, on a more personal side, LBJ desperately wanted the approbation of Jackie Kennedy. Uh, her approval would have been a great feather in his cap. And while they had a very cordial relationship, as you heard there, she sort of always politely withheld uh, the, the greater affection that I think Lyndon Johnson might have been looking for. In uh, that month after the assassination and the transition uh, that you speak of, it, it finally took uh, President Johnson back to that ranch uh, talk to us a little bit about what that meant to return to the LBJ Ranch and, and what transpired in Christmas 1963 there. Well, I just think he wanted to reconnect with, uh, again, the, the, the place that meant so much to, to him. It had been an extraordinarily turbulent month. Uh, I mentioned the, uh, the solace that, that that place gave him uh, and the great pride that it gave him. And, uh, and there was no doubt that uh, that's where he would want to spend uh, Christmas of 1963, particularly after that time. I'll read, read a, from a narrative that we got from that Christmas dinner. A month later, frazzled from as Lady Bird described at the tornado of activity that surrounded us, the Johnson family retreated to the ranch on Christmas Eve. West German Chancellor Ludwig er Erhard was scheduled to visit the president to discuss the Soviet threat, the Berlin Wall, and other important matters. Rather than return to Washington for a formal state dinner, Johnson invited Erhard and his entourage to come down to what historians claim was the first official presidential barbecue in history. Yes, Johnson's first state dinner was a barbecue for 300 people, catered by Walter Jetton on December 29th, 1963. Adam, uh, and as you and I are thinking about Christmas in the Northeast and perhaps a lot of rain and snow, the idea of being among the scrub along the Perdinalis sounds uh, quite attractive, even if you have to go into a gymnasium because it's a little colder than the Johnsons expected. It's, it's, it's so amazing, and I'm so anxious to hear Mark talk about this because... Uh, just in my time serving in the White House, I spent time down in Crawford, Texas, where the president was always so gracious and having staff and friends around for a holiday barbecue or uh, taking the time, uh, like President Johnson, to uh, invite heads of state down there. But this was the beginning of a tradition, an American presidential tradition, wasn't it, Mark? It, it was. And actually, if you you know that the Ronald Reagan uh, took uh, heads of state to his ranch outside of Santa Barbara. And as you just mentioned, Adam, uh, our 43rd president, George W. Bush, took, took heads of state to Crawford. And I, I think, again, th these, these men had connections to that land. It's where they felt most at home. And I think that they wanted to put that in on display to world leaders to give them a glimpse of who they were, who they, and, and what made them tick. And I think that's an effective means of doing that. So, Mark Updegrove, you've closed what was the LBJ Library for a year. You've put $10 million into it. How is that reflected? First of all, why, why does a, a president who uh, served back in the 60s, who was, uh, many of us, uh, me excluded, was not alive when uh, Lyndon Johnson was president, what, what's the rationale for redoing the library at this point in history? Well, the, the, there are several reasons. Number one is that uh, we hadn't done anything in, in 20 years to the exhibit, and it was, it was high time that we uh, utilized the technology available to us today to tell this story in a more contemporary way. 
And there are interactive uh, means by which to do that that weren't available five years ago, let alone 20 years ago. So we're drawing on them to tell this story to uh, hopefully a younger generation as, as well as to folks who may have lived uh, during that time. That's one thing. The other thing is, uh, and you heard one of them earlier in this broadcast, one of the things that's happened since the last rehaul is we have processed all of the telephone recordings of the of the Johnson administration, of which there are about 643 hours. And those telephone conversations can be heard, or some of them at, at least, during the course of the exhibit. There are 12 different spots where you can learn about different aspects of, of uh, this president and his administration, and then pick up a handset and hear him doing the business of his presidency. That really brings this man alive in ways that we couldn't uh, imagine otherwise. And then finally, I think that the, we are finally getting an objective view on LBJ's administration. It took us longer than it might another president because the the, the long, dark uh uh, Viet, uh, the shadow of Vietnam had yet to recede. Passions about that ran so deep. And I think we can finally look a little bit more objectively at this president and what he has meant to this country now than we might have 20 years ago. Before we move on with our conversation with Mark Updegrove, let's hear one of the parts of that collection. This is uh, LBJ wishing Harry Truman a Merry Christmas in 1968. I wanted to wish you a Merry Christmas and tell you that you're loved. Thank you very much, and I hope you everything goes all right for you. It's gone. It's gone. It's been going well for me ever since I met you. And uh, Bird and I were just thinking about what wonderful people uh, uh, you and uh, Miss Bess had been to us since uh, uh, we uh, uh, met you, and we wanted to thank you. Mark, as Adam knows, the uh, the George W. Bush Presidential Library is uh, is set to open. The George H. W. Bush in Houston Library is uh, is humming along in Houston. What's the relationship between these three so important presidential libraries in the state of Texas? You know, the the uh, there are twelve, as you, and you just pointed out, Josh, uh, soon to be thirteen presidential libraries under the auspices of the National Archives. These are uh, national treasures and. Three of them happen to be in Texas. Um, we we don't see them as red institutions or blue institutions. They are purple, and they are uh, they are there for the American people to learn more about the institution that has guided this uh, this country more than any other, and that is the American presidency. And this is so Texans and Americans who come to Texas have an opportunity to see three in one fell swoop. We're all within about three hours of of one another. And actually, last month. We uh, just culminated a, a series of symposiums that all of the Texas presidential libraries had on first ladies, uh, the legacies of our first ladies through history. And that was, is the first of what I hope will be many joint projects that the three Texas presidential libraries embark on. We had uh, Anita McBride, uh, former chief of staff to First Lady Laura Bush. Uh, on this year talking about the First Ladies and uh, a kinship that existed among those who uh, hailed from Texas or ended up retiring there. But I was thinking last night as Josh and I were conversing uh, about this interview today, as a historian, as somebody who has invested so much in, in bringing the story of of uh, the Johnson presidency and the history uh, back to relevancy and, and to updating the museum. Um, what do you think about the the kind of 
history that we're seeing take place on television networks like HBO. Oliver Stone is out with uh, untold stories of, of American history, and some of it deeply pulls into uh, the presidency uh, of Johnson. Have you seen any of that? Uh, are you confronting revisionist histories out there about uh, the president and other presidents? I think it's fair to say that when you run the, uh, the LBJ Presidential Library, you're confronting revisionist history every day. <laughs> this is one of our more controversial presidents, and I think there are a lot of misconceptions about him, uh, particularly as it relates to the Kennedy assassination in Vietnam. And as ludicrous as the assertions and, and speculation might be about what LBJ may have done, um, we are still confronted with it almost 50 years after the fact. <laughs> And I don't think that that'll go away anytime soon. I, unfortunately, so much of, of what you see uh, in Hollywood depicting our presidents is, is wholly inaccurate. And there's no litmus test for what uh, should fly in, in the face of, of history. Uh, you, one hopes that whatever people consume uh, on the screen, uh, you know, they, they supplement by, by reading historical accounts from legitimate historians. As the Caro volumes increase, and we read Passage to Power this summer, uh, does does both the appreciation of the Johnson presidency and this sort of need to reach out to Caro and have him tell us the story, does that increase? I mean, where would where would the story of Lyndon Johnson be without the lifelong commitment of Robert Caro? Well, I think it, it, Lyndon Johnson would remain a very consequential president. I think he's the probably... In my opinion, he and Ronald Reagan are the most transformative presidents of the last half century. Uh, and in so many ways, Lyndon Johnson guides us into modern America. And I don't think you need Robert Caro in order to, to show the importance of Lyndon Johnson. In fact, Caro didn't even get into the presidency until this latest volume. But I'll say this, and it goes back to what you said, Adam, a moment ago. Uh, you, you mentioned the word uh, relevance, and there is such great relevance to Lyndon Johnson today. I think I, I hope this exhibit that we're about to unveil reflects that. Um, but moreover, uh, you, you see, you, you mentioned the, the Brady Bill uh, that was signed during the Clinton administration. Uh, LBJ is an example of somebody who let no crisis go to waste, and there are four great examples of that, including one on gun control. But but two of them are. Uh, we heard the conversation with Jacqueline Kennedy uh, in 1963, but LBJ used the martyrdom of John F. Kennedy to pass the civil rights of 1964, something that Kennedy tried to pass in 1963 and probably would not have, have gotten through Congress. LBJ did, in part by using the martyrdom to, uh, of, of JFK to leverage that from reluctant lawmakers. He did the same thing in 1968 after the assassination of Kennedy's brother, Robert F. Kennedy. Um, both uh, Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy died uh, by assassin's bullets within three months of each other. And LBJ used those crises to enact uh, gun control at that time, the most sweeping we had until the Brady Bill. Uh, he didn't get as much as he wanted through Congress. He had to compromise a little bit. But he used that crisis to do what he probably would not have otherwise have been able to do. As we continue in our conversation with Mark Updegrove, Executive Director of the Lyndon Baines Johnson Presidential Library here on POTUS, Sirius XM Channel 124, Adam Belmar and me on Polyoptics, I'd love to continue just for a moment this sort of holiday strain of our listening to some 
historical recordings, which you can find at the newly renovated LBJ Library. Let's hear LBJ calling Dwight Eisenhower at Christmas in 1964. We were thinking of you and mighty grateful to you. Why, how nice of you called. Thank you very, very much indeed. I hope you're having a good Christmas. Mamie and I are just old. We just finished opening our our uh, presents, and we're just exhausted. <laughs> well, I got one for you, but I haven't sent it. I had to get it leather-bound, put your initials on it, but uh, that uh, frugality and thrift and economy speech, I just had it made up uh, to send to you for Christmas, Pat. Why, thank you very much indeed. I think you're going to enjoy uh, the budget more, though, than you did the speech. <laughs> Mark, you've got 643 hours of LBJ recordings that are available to visitors. What's available to visitors, and also importantly, can you share with Adam and me and our listeners, what's not available? What still has to be processed? What's classified? What's too personal? How do you decide what is made public at this point so many decades after Lyndon Johnson's life and what needs to remain secret and for how long? We, we have a team of archivists who go through uh, the sensitive documents of the administration and, and they get processes on an ongoing basis. But, um, but based on the Freedom of Information Act, you can request that something that you know is in our archive be processed and we have to do that in due time. There are still some records that, that have yet to be um, released to the, to the public, not many after 45 years or so. Um, but uh, it, as you can see with the, the George W. Bush Library, there, there's a, uh, a, a huge formidable task for archivists to go through uh, those archives and release things to the, to the public. The decision is principally made by the, uh, the director of the library and the president, if he's alive, as to what gets sorts, sorted out first. In LBJ's case, I'll tell you that, that when he dedicated the library in 1971, he said, I think very famously to us who were there, it's all here, the story of our time with the bark off. This story will show the facts, not just the the joy and triumph, but the sorrow and failures too. And he wanted us to process everything as quickly as we could, including, importantly at that time, the records of Vietnam. He was confident if that if... Uh, uh, researchers went through and looked at his record on Vietnam, they would understand his motivations for fighting the war, and perhaps falsely, but that's what he had hoped. It's so amazing to think that uh, the refresh that's going on there, that the whole nation and, and really the world can enjoy now, is leveraging some of the multimedia elements that have made President Johnson so accessible to people who didn't know him or weren't alive during his presidency. And this, as you mentioned, is become increasingly the challenge for presidents uh, of, of more recent times. Certainly President Clinton and the work that you did, Josh, an enormous compendium, uh, not only of documents, but of footage and speeches and radio addresses. Um, you all really have an enormous challenge, and you've been working on it for so long. We're very blessed that you would come and share with us, with us on polyoptics, and thank you for being here. Adam, thank you. Josh, thanks so much. Happy holidays to both of you. You as well. Good luck with the opening. (laughs) 
So Adam, as we continue our final show of the year, a few days before Christmas, Saturday, we know people are out driving and shopping and getting their last presents. We have one more great Christmas gift for all of our listeners, uh, and he goes by the name of At Beschloss DC. In other words, in, in reality, it is Michael Beschloss, presidential historian, author of nine books about the presidency and our leaders of the 20th century, and a, a person for whom Adam and I are huge fans. Michael, welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks for coming by. Uh, thanks, Josh. Thanks, Adam. Uh, as I was saying before we came on air, I have no other name these days except for at Beschloss DC, my Twitter handle. I think it's so uh, it's so perfect because at uh, Beschloss DC is uh, what makes Michael Beschloss accessible for every American. Uh, but he's been making the presidency accessible uh, in 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 layman's terms. Uh, with a with a very eloquent touch for generations, and I and I mean that because for Thank decades, uh, through our our television networks, Michael has been there. He's been the gold standard for helping to understand history as it's unfolding and taking a look back. And I had a chance to work with you a little bit or work near you a- at Adam ABC is, News. Adam is being so modest. Uh, he was a producer. He could boss me around in those days, but, which uh, I'm now, reminding him does not extend to this this half hour. But now uh, we're having a chance to speak on the air, and I'm very excited about it. Me too. As Josh mentioned, uh, Twitter has revolutionized uh, conversations in America. But you came to it perhaps a little later than most. But I am boy, what, you've jumped in with both I am feet. What, I am what they call a late adapter, a very late adapter. And other people would call it a Luddite, I guess. And I was aware of Twitter, and I would sometimes use a search engine to search comments on Twitter. And the way this happened was, during one of the presidential debates, I was talking about it before and after the debate on PBS. And Christina Ballantoni, their great political editor, said, what are you doing with that search engine? Why don't you just go on Twitter? And I sort of figured, why not try it and see if I liked it or not? Well, you were using it to some extent to see what others were saying. Exactly right? right. And she gave me the sense that this was really not on. If you're going to do that, you really should contribute as well as uh, listen and watch. Well, Josh has pointed out uh, already in the introduction that at uh, Beschlosh DC, that's where you find him on Twitter, has been taking small visual pieces of presidential history and uh, helping to... Uh, create a conversation and potentially even a pop quiz. What do you see here? And then Michael Betchloss will be able to tell you a little bit more about the genesis of some of these photos, Josh. Michael, I'm just curious, like when you decided to move from research to actually communication through Twitter, what was the experience like for you? I mean, you've sold nine books and you watch your newsstand sales, but suddenly you can reach into the visual history of all the people that you've written about for so long, give us this tantalizing little nugget. I'm I'm thinking of the one that I sort of toyed with a few weeks ago when you tweeted out this picture of Richard Nixon getting doused with beer, and I was so <laughs> tantalized with it. I said, what is that picture? And w- in your first tweet, I mean, tell us how this sort of this crescendo grew and what you decided was going to be the first images you would start sending out. Well, for years, I've not only been writing presidential history, but I've been fascinated by what you guys are fascinated by, which is how images of presidents can tell you an awful lot and so, how sometimes people miss those clues. So I've been collecting these images for years without any thought that I would be using them on Twitter. But one example, just as you said, it's a picture I wish... Everyone could see it, and they can see it on my Twitter site, uh, Beschloss DC, uh, the image of it. But there is an image of uh, Richard Nixon with uh, a beer can over his head, beer being poured. Streaming down his face. Which is not an experience that most people have seen Nixon having very often. 
And I was fascinated by you know, how people reacted to this, what they thought the scene was, because I didn't tell them what it was. One wrote, uh, it's, it's Dick Nixon partying hard. Didn't seem too much in character. Another said, uh, it's Nixon celebrating his pardon by Gerald Ford. Sounds a little bit more plausible, but not really. Turns out what it was was Nixon, who was uh, attending a game at, game at Anaheim about uh, four or five years after he had resigned, uh, there was a victory. This is being poured over his head. He was enough of a politician to know that if there was a picture just like this of Nixon looking like a regular guy, it would really help his rehabilitation. In a little way, it did. One of the things that I uh, I, I also love about this picture is that uh, it's just one that we've really never seen before. As you say, you you found these these images that exist, and there there are some others. Uh, Josh uh, had pointed up one to me that you had uh, tweeted out of a very young, almost uh, unbelievably young Bill Clinton seated with... Uh, Looks about 12 years you know, old. No, it was, it was, was, was George Bush, George H.W. Bush the president at the time? He was vice president at the time. He was vice president. Tell us about this, because he's sitting at a picnic table with uh, Governor George Wallace and Bill Clinton. An unlikely crew, if ever you've seen this picture, and you will on polyoptics or by following at Peshlash, D.C., but uh, this isn't Photoshop. This is real. No, that's exactly right. And what this is, is you, you see Clinton looking about 12... George H.W. Bush looking a lot younger than he was when Clinton and Bush ran against each other. So first of all, you're wondering, what are these guys doing at the same table about a decade before they were bitter opponents, 1992? And then you look to the right, what the hell is George Wallace doing there, the you know racist, segregationist governor of the 1960s? Didn't even know that they knew each other. Well, what it was was the elder George Bush had the governors of the United States up to his house at Kennebunkport, was serving them lobster, and in George Wallace's case, he ordered Mountain Dew, which you can see on the table. And so Clinton and Wallace were governors. That's why they were there. Josh, what did you think about the, the former president, Bill Clinton, in that picture? Uh, obviously, you, you know him quite well, but uh, this was such a young governor at the time. Well, yeah, I mean, but I, I've been so enjoying um, the American experience, which showed Clinton as governor and uh, as attorney general before that, a candidate for Congress. I wonder, Michael, as a person who has spent his life writing these tomes uh, and went through education at Andover, Williams and Harvard, who looks at what reviews to your books, but suddenly you're getting these instant reactions to the same kind of history boiled down to these bite-sized nuggets. What are your days like now in terms of the gratification that a historian might wait years to get and suddenly you're getting people from, I'm sure, all over the world saying, I can't believe that piece of history that you served up like... Uh, like Bush, Wallace, and Clinton in Kennebunkport, or like today, you must have begun over coffee and saying, look, there's uh, there's Times Person of the Year, it's Barack Obama, but let me go back in history to uh, to when Jack Kennedy was made Times Man of the Year, and suddenly you can share that with everybody. Yeah, or even I think another one I did was Nixon was Man of the Year after he was reelected in 1972, just like Obama, but Time made Nixon share it with Henry Kissinger, and he was furious, and so as a result... 
reacting to that cover, he tried to make Kissinger's uh, life miserable to pay for that. And this Kennedy shot today, which I hadn't, I mean, I'm a collector of old time magazines, and yet this is a very awkward picture of President Kennedy. Yeah, it's a picture where Kennedy's tie is askew, his uh, one eye looks as if he's almost cross-eyed. Kennedy was absolutely convinced that this was the plot of the Republicans in those days, Time magazine, to undermine him. I have to tell you, I I was just uh, thinking as Josh was talking about uh, your background and where you went to school, I was feverishly hitting the Google and realized that uh, in your your youth, you went to Eagle Brook um, and you really sort of came up through uh, a more traditional New England boarding school background, um, but you hail from Illinois originally. Um, most of my friends in Illinois thought I was sent to reform school. That's right. right. So they sent that him out east. We don't know school. whatever happened to him. Right. The libraries at those schools where you went were magnificent. Um, and also, I, I actually spoke to two future presidents at the time because this is where I was George going. W. Bush's brother Marvin was in the next room from me, and we were friends. And his father, George H.W. Bush, would call up on the pay telephone, and so I would answer the phone and go get Marvin. And the same thing with George W. Bush. So in a way, the way that Andover prepared me for yes. presidential history was that at the age of 15 or 16, I got to talk to two future ones. Isn't that fantastic? Um, today, uh, the end of 2012, as we go into 2013, you are uh, a commentator on the PBS NewsHour you are also a presidential historian with ties to NBC News. Having finished this election um, and, and looking forward to the inauguration of uh, Barack Obama for the second time, what are you looking for? What do you expect? What do you uh, think you'll be keying on as we think about the 21st of January in this inauguration? A second inaugural, you have a context for these things that we could never have. Take us through it. You're looking for clues uh, about what's going to happen during the next term. And the problem is that that only takes you so far because look at, for instance, uh, 1977. Who could know that Jimmy Carter would have to deal with Iran hostages or George W. Bush 9-11 in the year 2001? So all of us want to have some idea of what's ahead, but there's only a certain extent to which you could do that. You're talking to... uh at Beschloss, D.C., otherwise known as Michael Beschloss. You're here with Adam Belmar and me, Josh King, on Polyoptics, Sirius XM, Channel 124, POTUS on Polyoptics. Uh, Michael, you do spend so much time putting together uh, the books and in the frequency that they come out, and yet as we were talking with Adam before we came on, if you look back at presidential contests going back to 1992, and you think about the visual presence of both major candidates, and in the case of 92, Ross Perot, uh, is it fair to say, given the power of the visual over a viewer's subconscious, that the person who seemed to be younger, more vigorous, more in touch with maybe the land and patriotism, but through in a visual sense who conveyed a sense of, is more like me, has been the person who has emerged victorious. And what does that say, despite all the coverage of policy and substance, that we are we are basically choosing presidents based on an image that they project? Yeah, and, and for a good reason. And in fact, the one moment of that campaign I think everyone was affected by was a snapshot of George H.W. Bush looking at his watch during a debate and a sense that perhaps he was distracted, unfair to him, and probably lost him an awful lot of votes. 
But but what we're trying to do in an election is, you know, we know what a president will do usually on the major issues because the candidate will talk about that. What we don't know is the kind of decisions that he will make when you're not in the room, at least journalistically or, or otherwise, and also on questions that we don't have the expertise, sometimes scientific questions. So as a result, we all want someone whose values and soul we're comfortable with so that if they're making a decision that we don't know a thing about but could end up being very important, we want the sense that they'll do the right thing. The The idea of the visual elements and presidencies expands uh, every four years because of technology and the reach that uh, that messaging and imagery have. One of the things that Josh pioneered uh, uh, and really took forward, although uh, as, as he loves to point out, and, and many historians do, that Michael Deaver was really uh, uh, the innovator here, is focusing the television lens uh, of journalists on specific elements that help support matching image with message and where the president was and creating something that was compelling for the evening newscast because we were quickly whittling ourselves down to sound bites and short clips and sure. not long speeches. But today... Um, where we just a week ago uh, spoke with uh, Rush Schrieffer, who was a, a leading uh, message and Stu- media. Stuart Stevens' yes, partner. Yes, Stu uh, was up in Vermont and couldn't, couldn't, couldn't be down here to do this, so we talked to Russ, too. Um, and, and I spent a lot of time working on that campaign with them. But one of the things that Russ talked about, and, and I'm very anxious to hear your thought on it, is that uh, those sound-down you know, clips that you see on television, just just the image, the above-the-fold pictures in the newspaper are giving way more and more to just small images, uh, not unlike what you find at At Best Lost DC, that are being moved on, on Twitter and Facebook, and, 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 and the context is not there. Uh, how important is it for candidates, for presidents to be hyper-mindful, should they be, of every set and every piece that's around them uh, for fear that if you don't manage the image, it will get away from you? Absolutely right. You know, one of the images that uh, I use on this Twitter account is a picture from the 60 campaign, and you see uh, Lyndon Johnson with his hand in the air uh, with a finger. It's not his third finger, I'm happy to report, but okay, I know the pointing and yelling of, yes. and has a cowboy hat, and John Kennedy is behind him trying to restrain him, it seems, and so if you look at that, in one moment, it gives you sort of a sense of the relationship between those two guys, and in a way, sort of an icon for the 60s, almost, Kennedy trying to restrain Johnson on Vietnam. But what it actually was, was there was an effort to have a, a photo opportunity, an event, a rally uh, at the airport in Amarillo. And Johnson's people even went to the lengths of making sure that there was no overhead air traffic that would ruin this event. So Kennedy began to speak. And a lot of the pilots who were waiting in their planes, who were Republicans, started turning on their engines and making a lot of noise, literally drowning out Kennedy. So you see Johnson essentially interrupting Kennedy's speech and saying, you know, turn off those engines, which he he was doing. And you can see didn't reflect uh, very well on him. On our holiday theme of polyoptics on Sirius XM, let's hear a little bit of John F. Kennedy talking about uh, the blessings of peace during Christmas 1962. In this year of 1962... We greet each other at Christmas with some special sense of the blessings of peace. This has been a year of peril when the P 
peace has been uh, sorely threatened. But it has been a year when peril was faced and when reason ruled. As a result, we may talk at this Christmas just a little bit more confidently of peace on earth, goodwill to man. Michael, are there, are there things still yet to learn about John F. Kennedy that aren't yet chronicled in the hundreds of books that have now been uh, written about his presidency? I think there always are because we're always getting more sources in hindsight, but part of it is looking at a moment in a different way. Now, the one we've just heard, you sort of think it's maybe sort of an anodyne president, you know, lighting a Christmas tree, they all do. But think about this. This was Christmas 1962. Sixty days earlier, Kennedy had almost single-handedly saved the Northern Hemisphere from being incinerated in a nuclear war with the Soviet Union that could have killed tens of millions of people. He knew that at the moment he was lighting that tree, what was going on in his mind presumably was there was a very close call, a very good chance that we would not be here to do this. Josh, uh, when we think about uh, these elements of presidential history, uh, my mind, just as a practitioner, always turns to what what comes next, and what can we what can we think of strategically that we should be uh, preparing for in, in in optimizing communication around the presidency from what we can learn about the way things have worked in the past. And I struggle a lot, and I wonder what you think about this, Josh, with not wanting to be too uh, too programmed, uh, too overproduced, and you know some of the the pictures that uh, that Michael has been talking to us about here on Polyoptics have been images that were captured um, in, in in just a very natural setting, and they they never were composed to come out that way. The beer can, the aggressive Lyndon Johnson trying to get the yeah. the airplane sound yeah. down, and there are so many great examples. Uh, during the Clinton presidency of, of this kind of just impromptu OTR type of event right. that really showed a lot about that president. And yet we'd be getting so much more managed and so much more optically challenged, especially, I think, in the Obama administration. Maybe the campaign took some of that rigor off. But is, this is a real challenge I, these I, days, isn't it, Josh? I don't, I don't think so. It, you know, And we'll get Michael's view on this, too. But here's a big theme of mine which is uh, President Clinton used a teleprompter very sparingly, as I think did President George W. That's Bush. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the Obama White House, uh, it's not used uh, only on rare occasions. And so this is a the first term and the election uh, has been incredibly scripted. Mm. I think Governor Romney uh, wanted to, uh, at the very end, he went very much to the teleprompter to be safe. And here we have a very important second term, Michael Beschloss, uh, because the la in the last two second terms of presidencies, George W. Bush's, Bill Clinton's, both tainted by either war or scandal, you almost have an open book, an ability for a president to almost be himself and uh, without another election to win and to do some things historic, but it requires you to, to drop your armor a little bit and expose whether it's it's Johnson exposing his gallbladder or Reagan doing his calisthenics after he was shot or Clinton uh, hobbling out of Greg Norman's house with a busted up uh, knee. Can this president be himself and show us who he really is or is it can, going to take what Adam and I learned and did and make it all the more a scripted show? Well, the fascinating thing about Barack Obama is that maybe if anyone is going to be that way, it could be he because 
you know, his wife, for instance, is not planning to run for the Senate, as was the case with Bill Clinton. He probably wants to raise money for his library, but that's probably pretty manageable. So if you think of all the reasons why sometimes second-term presidents are a little bit, have a tendency to sort of pull in their horns and not be as audacious as they thought that they were, Barack Obama, you know, whether people like him or do not like him, this is someone who I think places a great value on at least seeming genuine to himself. And even that one uh, compulsion, I think, may turn out to be uh, something that causes this second term to be a little bit more spontaneous. We uh, we started out this conversation uh, on the visual, and, and as we, we come towards the end of our conversation with Michael Betchless here on Polyoptics on POTUS Series 6 and 124, Michael, why don't you give us your, your thought about the people who capture the, uh, the imagery uh, of our presidents, the White House uh, press corps, the wire photogs, and also those photographers, uh, a little bit we've discussed already, uh, who are presidential photographers. And uh, your thought about uh, Ronald Reagan's photographer, Pete Sousa, someone I worked with when he was at the Tribune, someone Josh knows, someone we've had on this show. Uh, now eight years, it seems, he's looking to try and do, just as Eric Draper did with George W. Bush, uh, of chronicling this presidency. And you have to assume that the Obama people wanted him to do for Barack Obama what he did for Ronald Reagan. And to some extent, that's true. Anyone who saw Time magazine late this month with the Man of the Year cover, mm-hmm. Person of the Year, saw that picture of Barack Obama seeming to flinch from a kid in a Spider-Man costume that was so much like Reagan, the kind of thing that caused people to bond with that president. Let's hear, as we conclude uh, this episode of Polyoptics, Reagan talking about the star during uh, the 1987 peace tree lighting. The star of peace atop the national Christmas tree will be lit day and night during the time our Soviet guests are here. And as we look out from the White House during our discussions, let the star remind us why we've gathered and what we seek. President Ronald Reagan, Michael Beschloss, uh, at Beschloss, D.C. If anyone, uh, if anyone wants to, over the next few days and uh, over the holiday, just be reminded every few hours about how unique our presidency is as captured through the lens, uh, either black and white or color. Uh, Michael, uh, tweeted out a picture of Reagan uh, actually at a universal gym uh, trying to get his pecs back in shape Looking after the assassination. Good, Looking, Looking great. Yeah. Not, Looking like, great. Not, not quite as good as Scott Pelley the other night. <laughs> <laughs> Scott Pelley did not go through the ordeal that Ronald Reagan did, thank God. Michael Beschloss, thanks so much for sharing this uh, time with us right before Christmas, Pleasure. and I hope you'll keep us uh, keep us watching and t- and following you on Twitter at Beschloss DC, the the great images of our institution, the presidency of the United States. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. So, Adam, Mark Up to Grove, Lyndon Baines Johnson Presidential Library, Michael Beschloss at Beschloss DC. Good hit two historians for a, a final episode of the year. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, I got all my Hanukkah, my polyoptics Hanukkah and Christmas gifts at once because uh, this has been almost a, a perfect show for us, Josh. Quite a year, uh, ending on this sort of so somber note in Newtown, but uh, also punctuated by uh, a glorious campaign in some ways. Um, how do you feel about the, the campaign now that it's sort of more six, six weeks in the rearview mirror? You know, I keep learning things about this campaign, not just about the part that I played uh, on the polyoptic side, but all of the, the utilization of new technology and uh, leveraging 
visual interest as well. Uh, last week's show with Russ Schrieffer really I thought was quite telling, and uh, I'm, I'm learning more every day about how this 2012 campaign, Josh, uh, is pointing us on that road towards uh, the full integration of, of new media and technology in the presidency. There's a real polyoptics imperative there. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, and as we've talked to Michael Beschloss, who sort of spends so much time of his life devoting to, devoted to churning out these incredibly researched books, and yet we seem to gravitate toward what he can do with 100 and char- 140 characters in a picture. Well, it's, it's, it's like you have said from the very beginning with the 10-part series on polyoptics that, 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 that you crafted so well uh, of the modern presidency, um, or really for all presidencies, um, and, and, and it comes down to narrative. It comes down to storytelling. And I think what we all sort of learned uh, through Beschloss uh, at Beschloss DC and his Twitter uh, feed is that great historians by necessity have to be great storytellers. And he is one uh, on every medium now, uh, the new media on television, on radio. So we've finished 83 episodes. It's Can you about, believe it? It's spanned about two years, Adam. Uh, we've both grown up a lot. A lot of things have changed, but it's great to, at the end of a year, uh, to be back in the studio with you, just your voice and mine talking about these issues, and then looking ahead, hopefully, to a, a nice week off with our kids, yeah? Indeed. Uh, my sons, uh, Max and Sam Belmar, love listening to this show. Uh, they're ever asking whether they can do what Toby uh, King did and come and be in the studio and uh, it's been a family affair and it's been great to share that with you Josh and uh, Toby and Annabelle King are just in the studio next door I've got them alone for the weekend before we head up to New Hampshire on Christmas Eve and uh, how about you... how about a second to to, to, to give thanks for uh, Catherine Caperton Oh our producer God. here at Polyoptics. She's been with us since the very beginning, has endured all of our uh, crazy ideas about this show and back and forth and having managed our voices in New York and D.C. and, and has been so great from like the Monday of every week when we get a notion for a show and being able to help us get people in and make these elements all work. Thank you, Catherine. Yeah, Catherine, uh, I just was, was signaling her to turn on that microphone and let people hear you. Uh, no one y- hears me. Everyone should hear you. You are behind polyoptics <laughs> and you're going to be with us into 2013, aren't you? Of course, all the way. Josh, so, no, go <laughs> ahead. I was just going to say, you know, uh, as we think about talking with Updegrove and uh, and Beschloss and going back so much to the, the Johnson presidency and today would be the 100th birthday of Lady Bird Johnson and uh, and we covered Kennedy and some and some Nixon with Beschloss. I, I do go back to, you know, I, I'm a 47-year-old guy, I grew up mostly in the 70s and 80s, but I do have this sort of very warm spot for Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel and the effect they had over listeners in the 1960s and perf- incredibly as we as we leave us uh, in the final moments of polyoptics for the year Adam uh, Silent Night uh, their famous recording that ended at the 7 o'clock news and reminded us so much of what was going on in the world around us at the time Adam happy Hanukkah Merry Christmas have a wonderful new year and I will see you on the other side Merry Christmas and happy new year to you Josh Dr. 
Martin Luther King says he does not intend to cancel plans for an open housing march Sunday into the Chicago suburb of Cicero. The county sheriff Richard Ogilvy asked King to call off the march, and the police in Cicero said they would ask the National Guard to be called out if it is held. King now in Atlanta, Georgia, plans to return to Chicago Tuesday. In Chicago, Richard Speck, accused murderer of nine student nurses, was brought before a grand jury today for indictment. The nurses were found stabbed and strangled in their Chicago apartment. In Washington, the atmosphere was tense today as a special subcommittee of the House Committee on Un-American Activities continued its probe into anti-Vietnam War protests. Demonstrators were forcibly evicted from the hearings when they began chanting anti-war slogans. Former Vice President Richard Nixon says that unless there is a substantial increase in the present war effort in Vietnam, the U.S. should look forward to five more years of war. In a speech before the Convention of the Veterans of Foreign Wars in New York, Nixon also said opposition to the war in this country is the greatest single weapon working against the U.S. That's the 7 o'clock edition of the news. Good night. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. You hear us each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS.